big question uh, in disability theology today is the erasure of disability and resurrection. So the people think that um, this controversial idea of, you know, when bodies are resurrected, they'll be quote unquote healed. Healing, of course, is not a value neutral thing. It's a transformation of a body into a, a kind of bodily ideal but not necessarily everyone has that same bodily ideal. I draw on the, in the book from my colleague Candida Moss, specifically her explanation of Mark 9, where Jesus talks about, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, or your hand causes you to sin, or your leg causes you to sin, you know, it's better for you to go into life with one eye or one hand or one leg. And that presumes continuity. So for Paul, I think Paul hints at it that there is continuity between bodies. There's no hint that bodies are changed or altered they are altered in substance, but not necessarily in form. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, podcast listeners of all ages and stages, welcome to episode 55, that's 55, of the Jolly Thoughts podcast. Hey, it's going to be a good one. I've got today Dr. Isaac Soon. Isaac is a associate professor of Bible over across the road uh, from where I live over at Crandall University. You know I love to have the Crandall folks on. You, so Crandall people, you write a book, we got a reason to talk. That's, you know, that's I'm sure the primary reason that you do this, right? Uh, so Isaac has a book coming out in uh, November called uh, A Disabled Apostle. And uh, we get into that today for the most part just kind of getting a bit of a, a lay of the land of the book uh, I'll be honest it was kind of a mind-blowing premise for me there was a few things that were very obvious but a lot of things that really came out of left field I walked away with more questions than answers and that's usually my favorite uh, kind of conversation to engage with so I appreciate Isaac's time for that also we get a chance to dip into his music a little bit in Poco uh, we talk about young that's y-e-u-n-g and some of the kind of congregational or is it uh, congregational worship that he's releasing. Uh, so Isaac's got a lot of the spin, and I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, without any further ado, then, my conversation with Dr. Isaac soon. Uh, so you're, you're on the other side of town now. You're at Crandall University, and yep, yep. Uh, you're, you're working on grants, and you got books stacked everywhere, and you're teaching how many classes right now? I, the regular course load at Crandall is about three classes, yeah. So I'm teaching a class on New Testament. I kind of teach a rolling New Testament intro class. Yeah. Then um, this term I'm doing a Life of Jesus course, with the, which is kind of Jesus in historical perspective, looking through the Gospels, but then also how early Christians wrestle with Jesus in apocryphal gospel literature. And then um, a course on Pauline studies, which is... Uh, about Paul, obviously, and a lot of canonical works, but then also hitting some of later Pauline traditions like his martyrdom accounts and uh, extra letters that he allegedly wrote. Uh, yeah, so it's it's good. Are you a Pauline or Pauline guy? Obviously, Pauline. Uh, go with. Pauline, I'll, I start off the course by saying this is not a course about a woman named Pauline. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, because I because I was trained in Australian and British citizen the uh, systems, I always said Pauline. Oh, yeah. uh, it wasn't until I came back to North America that I heard say people saying Pauline, um, but that confused me because Pauline is quite an, a, a popular name in Australia. Um, <laughs> so just to keep, I keep it about Paul Pauline, yeah, you know, for me. But well, my I mean, students, my yeah. students make fun of me because I say one Corinthians or two yeah. Corinthians rather than 1st Corinthians or 2nd Corinthians. And they always just think it's just absolutely hilarious. I don't know why, but... Uh... Well, I mean, that's a that's the big to-do. If you remember a few years ago when people just crucified Donald Trump for his use of... This is the whole ball game, right? One one Corinthians is the whole deal. Uh, okay. and, and he says, and, he, and, and you know, most people just kind of said, this showed his clear biblical illiteracy that he would have the audacity to refer to it as one great thing. Now, whether or not it is, is not actually the point. Uh, but it's just the idea that a lot of people around the world do tend to use those numberings in, in that way. And so somebody was like, yeah, he grew up Anglican. And that's probably not the, not the case. But anyway, so just so you know, Isaac has read the Bible before, even if he calls it one Corinthians or yes, one, yeah. one, Thess one Thessalonians and whatnot. Um, Fairly biblical, biblically illiter illiterate here. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that you came back to North America. And so this is the opportunity where I'm like, I actually don't really know 
anything about your story. So yeah. where, like, where were you from before you left North America? Yeah, so I grew up in, um, my parents immigrated to British Columbia in the 70s, and I was actually born there. So I was born in the Lower Mainland, grew up in Surrey, um, and then, uh, you know, did high school there, did schooling, and then I went off to Australia to study worship music. So I studied at a place called Hillstone College there. I did worship music, and then I started teaching there. I started teaching um, uh, music leadership and music directing, and then went on to start their songwriting program. Uh, at the same time, I was studying, started studying theology. So I did a, a bachelor's and then a master's there. Decided I want to pursue it further. So then my family and I, we moved to England. I did a second master's at Oxford and then my PhD at Durham uh, in the northeast of England. And then uh, COVID happened. And so then we kind of tried to escape out of the UK before the close of the borders. I have a family with three daughters, so we didn't want to get stuck uh, during a pandemic um, there. So we moved back to the Lower Mainland, lived with my folks in Abbotsford for about a year, and then uh, got a job out in Atlanta, Canada here in Moncton at Crandall. And had you been to Atlanta, Canada before? No, I had not. Yeah. So never. So this is my first, uh, well, that when I moved here was my first time over here. But yeah, we absolutely love it. It's it's um, it's beautiful. We love the winters. Uh uh, it's sunny during the winter. It's sunny during the winter, which is uh, different from British Columbia because the winter time is mostly just overcast. Right. Uh, the students like it's a permanent twilight movie, so it's pretty depressing. Um, but at least in Atlantic Canada, you know, maybe negative thirty, but it'll be sunny outside, and um, for some reason, it just makes it feel different. Yeah, and you uh, have snow. So if it's going to be if it's going to be brutal, uh, brutally cold, uh, I say have some snow to go with it, so you can go ahead well, exactly. and do some fun things on it. So exactly, absolutely, yeah. And it's funny, like we've lived in the same city now for a little over two years, and I, I saw you in the wild like one time earlier, <laughs> like at a like a public reading or something, and then out of the blue, just a few days ago, I saw you out in the wild an apple picking, uh, you know, which is a, definitely a pilgrimage of sorts. Uh, yes. That m- most of us who have children under a certain age, it's your annual homage to the gods of the apple trees. You go out and you <laughs> pick some apples and keep keep the people in business and uh, keep your kids from getting scurvy. So I mean, it was it, it was nice to see you and your your children out there. Hopefully you got uh, it was it was a really beautiful day for it. Hopefully you guys enjoyed your trip. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah no, it was, a, it was a really great time. Um, the, the kids really loved it and. I was nice. They spent a lot of time on the hay, the the, bay, the hay bales. So, yeah, uh, that's always fun. Yeah, I, I mean, I it, you're lucky to see me in the wild. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a recluse, mostly because I um, spend most of my evenings writing or or reading or stuff like that. Um, right. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's an interesting trajectory you had where you, I mean, you, you're, it's kind of like Voldemort in some respects now, like where I, I don't know if you're supposed to say the name Hillsong, and so, but you seem comfortable to use the to, to yes, use yeah. it and so yeah. if you if you invoke it i'll i'll invoke it as well um so that's an interesting trajectory to kind of go into the uh through through the music and arts and then go kind of a little bit more deep into academic study of the bible uh but then you're you have not you have not jettisoned your kind of artistic creative uh parts those are still there and so even right now as you're out here you've got some music that you're being released and so we'll have the opportunity to talk about some of the music that you're doing and also some of the scholarship and whatnot because the reason i wanted to reach out to you originally was because of the book uh that you were on you were working on and then has finally uh seen the light of the day called paul uh a disabled apostle and uh, you've been doing i mean i'm assuming that this was not something that you hatched up overnight so uh what's the what was the genesis of this project like where did this kind of come from in your world yeah great question so it really it really began eight years ago actually when i first went to oxford uh to do my mphil there read for mphil new testament Uh, you do kind of a extended thesis and I I kind of became fascinated with thinking about what did the apostle possible uh, what did the apostle Paul look like, right? What was his visual appearance? Um, and because we have very you know small records, there's this one second century text, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, which actually preserves, I think, preserves some traditions about uh, Paul's appearance that he has you know kind of a monobrow, he has an aquiline nose, he's bowed legs, and he's short. <laughs> Um, so I, I, that project really began thinking there. When I moved to Durham, I started to think about it in terms of disability. So not just in terms of, well, can we describe Paul's body, but also, you know, was Paul disabled? How would we talk about disability in the ancient world? And how would we talk about it in relation to Paul when there's just such a small amount of detail about his body? Most, I mean, he's not, uh, he's not putting a fashion show on in his letters, right? He's talking, he's trying to minister to churches, um, 
uh, that's how the that's how the story kind of uh, uh, that's how the kind of the study began. Yeah, I mean, did it have a a personal application point for you? So, like, I think for for somebody to invest this amount of time into something, sometimes it's you know you'll you'll hear people say, I mean, dissertations need to be written and master's theses need to be need to be written, and so at the end of the day, we're just kind of all just kind of looking for slices of un. Uh, undermined areas so that we can kind of dig down deep. So it's possible that it could just be like, oh, here's a here's an area that I don't see a lot of work on. And so I'm going to kind of double down in here. But for a lot, a lot of people, it, it touches dirt in their life in some way, like they have some kind of a personal relationship to the topic, and it, it affects them. Like, what what was mostly for you? What, what helped you kind of get across the hump in, in terms of investing your life in this direction? Yeah, great question. I mean, uh, so a lot of scholars who do pursue um, disability studies uh, wrestle or live with disability themselves. Uh, that's not the case for me yet, um, at least in a, a, a more explicit way. Uh, so for me, I was encouraged because I, I noticed on the one hand, there was a lot of great work being done by, by disability uh, scholars like uh, Candida Moss, Rebecca Raphael, um, uh, Jeremy Skipper, um, and but less more so in the Old Testament, less so in the New Testament. Um, uh, but a lot of the scholars who have been doing it, of course, were were um, uh, uh, disabled or lived with disability themselves. And you know, with a lot of these approaches, sometimes with queer approaches or post-colonial approaches or gender approaches, there's often an the assumption that there's kind of some personal investment because of personal experience with it. And then not that that's bad necessarily, but it does kind of get, uh, does kind of silo some of the work, right? Like mm -hmm. if you're not disabled, then, you know, you don't need to talk about this. And so, but I was encouraged and I wanted to bring to my other colleagues in New Testament that actually, just because you might not be living with a disability right now, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that, drawing on the experiences and uh, theories and uh, theology of people who live with disabilities uh, can't affect the way that you read the New Testament. And reading through a lot of these scholars in uh, disability studies and biblical studies just profoundly changed the way that I, um, uh, that I thought about the New Testament. And once you start to think about disability, then you start to notice actually how much disability has been a part of your life. So through family members or through, you know, my wife for many years worked in uh, disability care in Australia mm -hmm. and just all the pieces kind of started falling into place. You had been thinking about, you know, the concept of a normal body um, versus uh, bodies that strayed from the norm and disability and stigma that arises with when bodies are different. Um, we actually think about that all the time and disability. One of the, one of my favorite disability philosophers, Anita Guy, she talks about disability being uh, epistemological, it's about knowledge, and it actually helps define the boundaries of our world. So it's not this kind of peripheral thing that's on the sides, but it's actually deeply embedded in the way the world is. Um, so the personal investment for me was, it was a really, a, you know, a scales falling off my eyes, I uh, opening moment to, to think with and to learn from and sit at the feet of uh, people with disabilities or people who've been studying disability for a long time and to see the new testament open up uh, in a whole new way and the scales fell off your eyes uh just like again like it happened to paul there you go what an excellent transition and so actually i thought like when you when you said there's going to be a book about paul um and disability i thought well it's going to talk about blindness i assumed that that would be the thing so uh i was shocked when I got the abstract and took a look through it that what we saw instead were you kind of focus on three major windows into what could be disabilities in Paul's life. Um, you mentioned uh, his stature, which you've already kind of talked about. Like in other words, he might he might have been a short person. I think you even used the word dwarfism. Like he could have actually been somebody who had a kind of uncharacteristically small body. I was like, okay, tracking. Circumcision. I was like, whoa, that's a... <laughs> That's a that's a can of 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 uh, underwear worms that we all have to talk about, and and yeah. then the other one, uh, demonic, and I don't know that you use the word possession or oppression, but inhabitant, yeah, like that, that, yeah. that he's demonized in some way, yeah. and I was like, what you just man, just just let's talk about his eyes, man, like it's such an easy, <laughs> let's go there, let's just talk about the uh, the light, and anyway, so like I mean, I mean maybe you kind of walk us through some of these disabilities uh, and then kind of where you 
where you've gotten them from kind of both in the actual kind of canonical texts and then extra canonical texts and then how you yeah how you processed through some of these i suppose sure absolutely so um uh well i mean the easier one is um well we'll start with what should we start with but we'll start with <laughs> <laughs> let's go he's short uh, yeah, let's go he's short short, short stature so there's this really interesting uh weird episode at the end of two corinthians 11 where paul's talking he's talking about his hardships you know i've been you know flogged 139 times i've been at, you know i've been stoned i've been shipwrecked all these it's you know this it's really crisis catalog of things he's been through and at the very end of the chapter he talks about and you know one time i was in damascus and i was lowered down in a basket through the city wall and um, I read the episode, it appears both in Acts and in uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, but in my mind, as my kids were climbing all over me and there's uh, <laughs> shouting, you know, I had one inkling of a thought, which was, um, well, how small do you have to be to be in a basket? Or how big is this basket, right? I mean, yeah. you're not talking about a small wall. Uh, and so then I started to think about, well, could this be a suggestion about his size? And the word that Paul uses and the word that's re reproduced actually in Acts refers to a basket that's actually really, really small, um, which would imply that his body is small. And I kind of correlated that with uh, this uh, later apocryphal Jewish text, uh, apocryphal Christian text, um, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, where it describes him as being short. Mm -hmm. And he uses this Greek word mikros, which is not just kind of any kind of shortness, just like, you know, a couple inches short, but is often character, characterizes people who uh, have dwarf, dwarfism or short stature in the ancient world. Hmm. Um, so we see it in a lot of different texts. It's used as kind of like a stereotypical name for people who are, are shorter than, uh, 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 much sig significantly shorter than what they would have established as normal. Hmm. Um, so that's where I get that. Um, with his other disabilities of so circumcision, it's a bit of a strange one because circumcision is not, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to say normally, not often thought of as a disability, but in contemporary times, there is a rise of a movement called intactivists. Um, so the intactivist movement is really uh, very much anti, they view circumcision as a kind of um, genital mutilation, uh, uh, you know, against children. And it's very, very problematic not least because the rhetoric against it bleeds into kind of anti-Semitism and also um, anti uh, kind of Islamophobia, mm -hmm. uh, denying, you know, this kind of access to folks who are Jewish or uh, who, who follow Islam. Um, so circumcision seems a bit strange because, you know, it's a medical procedure for a lot of people, especially in North America, um, but it doesn't necessarily seem like a disability. But in the ancient world, you know, the thing about disability is that it's culturally specific. So it's culturally specific because bodily norms are culturally specific. So what is a norm or acceptable in one culture is not necessarily the same in another. In the ancient Mediterranean, um, in Greek and Roman culture, having foreskin was um, was important. Um, it, all the statues, they have uh, the, the male figures, they have foreskin. And if you didn't have foreskin, it was either an explicitly sexual context, or it was an explicitly what they would have called like a barbarian context. So cultures like Egyptians uh, or uh, uh, Judeans, um, they were ridiculed and stereotyped for this kind of mutilation, what they would have called a mutilation. Did Egyptians circumcise themselves? Yeah. So circumcision in, in ancient Egypt is, is quite a longstanding practice. Uh, actually, amongst, and amongst, I mean, even uh, Ethiopian, North African, so ancient Ethiopians, but North African uh, kind of peoples, it's very common in that kind of area, actually. So uh, ancient Jewish people were not exclusive. Uh, circumcision wasn't exclusive to them. Oh, fascinating. Okay, sorry. Yeah. So that that helps exp uh, broaden, I guess, the kind of pool from which people yeah. could think about this as being a disability. So that's helpful to know. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. so you're saying in their depictions of of this, they would be either, like you say, explicitly sexual and let the reader understand, um, yeah. or it would be um, it would be depicting somebody who is non-Greek, as it were. Mm -hmm. You know, like a, so it's kind of the we have a Jew slash Gentile uh, dichotomy in the in the uh, new testament uh, but we also have a kind of barbarian a greek and barbarian dichotomy that's how the ancient greeks would have thought of themselves so us and then all those other people 
That's exactly it. Yeah. So right. it's a very it's, it's a characteristic of others, uh, other people, right. um, less quote unquote civilized or things like that. Um, but of course, a circumcision in ancient Jewish cultures and ancient Israelite culture is the opposite of a disability. It's an advantage, right? It's a sign of the covenant. This is an you know it's an explicit um, marker of God's covenant with the the Jewish people. Um, so that's a really interesting way that disability can be so in one culture. Um, but the absolute opposite in another. Hmm. Um, well, the last disability that I explore in the book is uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh. So in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, he talks about, you know, the thorn in the flesh, an angel of Satan was given to me. And, you know, he petitions God three three times for him to get rid of it. Um, excuse me, but God, you know, just says no, actually. Um, I'm going to leave it there because it's actually good for the power that I've placed in you, you know, my... Um, and um, well, it, a lot of ink has been spilled over the years about trying to figure out what is this thorn in the flesh? Is it blindness, right? Is it, is it, is it some kind of eye or visual impairment um, uh, that, you know, may be hinted at in Acts, you know, Acts is uh, when Paul is on the Damascus road and he sees Jesus and, um, you know, he, he become he loses his uh, ability to see. Um, some people connected to Galatians 4, 13 to 15, you know, his encounter with the Galatians, he says, you know, it was because of a weakness of the flesh that I, you know, I first encountered you, but you welcomed me um, like an angel or a messenger of God. Uh, and every kind of thing has been uh, 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 supposed over the years from various types of malaria, head trauma, things like that. Um well, I didn't want to, one of the, one of the cautions, uh, one of the, the things that disability studies kind of, um, some wisdom from disability studies is uh, cautioning against retro diagnosis. So the idea of reading um, contemporary and modern medical categories into the past, um, right? So even, even with the, the, the expression dwarfism, when I talk about short stature, I prefer in the book to talk about short stature because dwarfism is a very specific well, I mean, if you want to be very particular, dwarfism often refers to a particular type of short stature, acro, uh, andro, I can't remember the name, actually. I, yeah, I'm blanking on the name. Um, but it refers to a particular medical type of short stature. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all people who are short stature have that exact particular pathological type. Um, and reading that into the past is even more difficult because we don't have Paul with us here to you know, examine or do... Uh, any kind of uh, diagnosis. Um, what I noticed with 2 Corinthians 12 and the thorn in the flesh is Paul uses this very, he, he explains it in metaphorical language by saying, this is a thorn in the flesh, but then he says it's an angel of Satan. And for ancient Jewish and Greco-Roman uh, readers and hearers, when they would hear that, an angel of Satan, they would automatically think of some kind of unclean spirit um, or a demonic force. And we have to remember in the ancient world, uh, demonic forces are not, are they're, take, they're taken for granted, right? And it's, it's a, an enchanted world where uh, demons and spirits and uh, cosmic forces are all around. And sometimes they're equated with the disease and illness. And so I argue that the, the, the label, the thorn is actually a metaphor for what's happening in Paul's body and that his body has been infiltrated by some, it could be an illness or a sickness, we don't know, but the way he characterizes it is as some kind of demonic force. And it wouldn't be unprecedented because in the second temple period, ancient Jewish people were very worried about their bodies being um, uh, uh, infiltrated or penetrated by these cosmic forces. I mean, the, if you read the gospel of Mark, for example, Jesus is a, he's kind of a cosmic, he, he's a battling cosmic forces. He's an exorcist there. And he's constantly coming across people whose bodies have, they've completely lost their autonomy as they you know, they speak in the voice of legions. They, uh, they have unclean spirits and they lose control of their body. So there's this, there's this uh, culture in the time of the fear of having, you know, a force in you um, and people having cantations, they have prayers so that no, you know, no Satan or no adversary goes into their bones or into their flesh. Uh, and so that's how I make sense of uh, 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 Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. All right, well, let's, let's hang out there for a second, because I'm just like, like, that is wild. And, and, and this is the, so the best part about being somebody who gets to ask questions about this stuff is that I get to uh, presume ignorance in some respects. But uh, I never 
cast ignorance upon upon you. So what ends up happening a lot of times is somebody will be like, but have you thought about this? You know, like, so you've just given like a, you know, a four minute summary of, you know, a, a, I'm assuming it's a two or 300 page book yeah. or, uh, and then, you know, eight years of study. And so, but so in my very, you know, snap judgments, here's the two or three things that I'm like, but this should completely debunk your thoughts. Uh, sure. Of course, entirely not true uh, because you have 99% of the time you've already encountered and have kind of worked through this stuff. But so this is an opportunity to bring us along part of the way through the journey. Sure. So, so the, the, the whole idea, and I think that you even actually, I know that you do wrestle with this in the text, my perception of how somebody would, Paul would kind of characterize being filled with the Holy spirit, which we certainly would assume that Paul is uh, because he constantly asks us to kind of imitate, or he asks the readers of his letter to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And he kind of becomes paradigmatic in some respects. So um, if he's to be this paradigm, then we're going to say he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And maybe, I don't know how the Greek works, is being filled um, on a regular basis with the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and so if that's the case, and if he, if his body, if his person is a receptacle in some respects, and that receptacle is, quote, filled and being filled with the Holy Spirit, how is there, like, the, either theologically or practically, how is there room for this, quote, messenger of Satan to be active in his in his life in some respects? You mentioned the idea that there's this kind of cultural milieu where people are using, ap ap I always say the word wrong, apotropaisms, whatever. They're doing things to kind of constantly ward off. Uh, but we, I think most modern Christians would say, would look back on some of those practices and say, well, those are, um, what's the word superstitions as in respects or whatever. Uh, and so we wouldn't even think that, well, Paul's, Paul's beyond all that, right. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be doing those kinds of things. And, and that's kind of maybe neither here nor there, but just his lived experience. How could he be somebody who's able to kind of go and be so holy that is able to, you know, cast out demons from slave girls that are, that are walking by to be able to heal, to be able to bring somebody to be an agent, to raise somebody from, from the dead, to be that in tune with God and yet somehow be demonized in that language. Like how does that work? Yeah. So it's a, I mean, it's a tricky question. The first thing to understand, I think is that it's not a novel in ancient Judaism to have a Holy spirit and an evil spirit in the same body. So we have texts like in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, uh, in one text called like the treaties of the two spirits, where, uh, the author talks about, uh, multiple different types of spirits within the same, same singular body. Um, there's not just, there's just not the same kind of, um, real estate monopoly that later Christian orthodoxy has with, with the Holy spirit. Um, and of course, Paul in his letters, you know, he does caution, he doesn't want, for example, Corinthian, uh, his Corinthian readers to, you know, he's cautious about how they're participating if they are participating in food sacrifice to idols, because he doesn't want, you know, fellowship with demons. Um, I think what makes Paul's case very different is that it's not him kind of um, fiddling around with idolatry or him like purposefully inviting a demonic spirit in, um, but he's given this spirit, uh, he's given this angel not necessarily by Satan, it's an agent agent of Satan, um, but by God. There's kind of a divine passive in the, he's just given it, and it's assumed in the text that, well, the only time someone gives it is, is God. And somehow it's placed there in order to increase the power of, um, uh, that the Holy Spirit's working in Paul's own body. And this cuts to the heart of what um, some scholars talk about the weakness and strength paradox with paradox with Paul, right? Like in two Corinthians 12 there, he does talk about, you know, after he begs God uh, for relief from this thing, God says, no, then he says, well, then I'm going to boast uh, in my weakness, right? Um, because then in my weakness, then I'm strong. Um, and so there's, it's this paradox within, within Paul that uh, just like as Christ's death and sacrifice, this violence towards his body brings liberty to other people. So also Paul's body in wrestling and being an agent of the Holy Spirit, but then also, you know, maybe having this being demonized, perhaps by an illness or something else, we don't know, but at least being demonized 
um, is this paradox of strength and weakness that despite this, what would seem to be of an extremely weak and ill body, um, it's actually a place where God's very power is working. And would you consider it to be important that, I mean, for the paradigm of this being a disability as it respects, would it be important for whatever this thorn is, whatever this messenger of Satan is, which, I mean, there's kind of a, a theological thing that we've left hanging, which is that it's sent, either sent by or allowed by God, but let's just kind of bracket that for now. Is it important for whatever that is to manifest itself physically as a physical limitation upon Paul in some respects? Right. I mean, I think so in my, it, he connects it in 2 Corinthians 12 to his ability to share uh, particular revelations that he's had or visionary experiences. So I think that there is some kind of, um, some kind of verbal impairment or cognitive impairment that doesn't allow he's, you know, he, anytime he tries to express these things that, you know, he might feel pain or something, but anything beyond there, I can only really speculate. It's just, he kind of vaguely references this in connection to um, his apocalyptic visions in, in 2 Corinthians 12. Yeah. Cause among some of the possible, possible explanations that you see, like obviously blindness and they said malaria, there's a lot of these physical ones, but then other people will say sometimes like this connects over to like a Romans seven, Romans eight kind of a paradigm where it's like that he has some sort of moral limitations and, you know, dudes would be like, I know what, the, I know what Paul's thorn in the flesh is. Cause I have it too. And, you know, in terms of like, just like lust of the eyes or whatever it be like. And so, and so, but those wouldn't be, those wouldn't kind of manifest themselves in some sort of a physical um, like I said, limitations in some respects, it'd be more like an internal moral struggle or dilemma, but. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I don't think that there's that explicit connection with Romans seven. And if, I mean, if it was something that was common to more than just Paul, it would be strange for him to be talking about it in such a personal way. Mm. Um, right. So if it was something that was a, a common feature of all humanity, you would expect him to be talking about it like he does in Romans six and Romans seven, which is, it's kind of, universal human struggling with their, you know, uh, internal human flesh. Right. So this is a little bit outside the scope of your, your work, but because you've brought it up, you have to at least give us a word or two on it. The, the idea that it is God himself who is, I don't know what the language that you want to use causing or allowing an agent of the enemy to kind of be in Paul's life. Like what, in your reading at the very least how's that in your reading and research what was the is there some kind of consensus on what we're supposed to think about that yeah great question there's not a consensus mostly because scholars don't want to think about it <laughs> it is because it's a, it is a huge can of worms um yeah. especially when you're taking a text that's normative and i want to be careful here that i'm not saying that just because this is my analysis of paul in his historical context is not necessarily how we should theologically think about it today there's you know there's further development we have to do sure. Um, often when people think in the ancient world, in time of Paul, often when people think about God and, you know, Satan, think about them on opposite sides, right? And this is kind of a later Christian formulation of Satan kind of being this really kind of equal opponent to God. And there's this warring, you know, it's Frank Peretti, right? You know, the, right. the this present darkness, right? God's forces are fighting. And then there's a rebuttal by, um, in ancient Jewish cosmology, and here I'm really drawing along a lot of the work of another scholar, Emma Wasserman, whose book, um, Apocalypse is Holy War. She really just talks about how in ancient Jewish texts, you know, um, there's no sense in which any kind of satanic or demonic cosmic forces are outside the realm of God's control. They might be mischievous and they might be rebellious, but for them to be outside of God's sovereignty would then have raised theological problems with what kind of all-powerful sovereign God is this? Sure. Um, so, yeah, and we do, you know, we see examples of this even in the Old Testament, right? Of um, the God of Israel sending, for example, or the council sending, uh, you know, a, a spirit to Saul to drive him mad. Mm -hmm. um, so there is this, a sense in which in ancient Jewish uh, culture and writings uh, that God is in control even of you know, these unclean spirits, and they're used in particular ways. Yeah. Um, now, the idea that God sends this, of course, is troubling. And I do, in one of my chapters, I do wrestle with the, this, you know, God disabling Paul. And, and I'm not trying to 
impose a kind of explanation on it, but I'm trying to see, well, how does Paul wrestle with this idea? Um, and it really is that appeal to a paradox. And I think it's a mystery for him. Um, he's in a time where there's a lot of Jewish texts like Fourth Ezra, like the Hodeyot in um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they're wrestling with, you know, profound violence, disruption to, uh, you know, their cultic religion and their way of life. And they're really trying to wrestle with, well, God, why is God letting this happen? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially not not just those who, you know, if, you know, if people are disobeying laws, then maybe they understand. But those who are trying to obey the laws and that these cataclysms still happen, you know, um, Paul's a perfect case, right? Like he's trying to follow his savior. He's, he's he's trying to spread the gospel. He's trying to do what God has called him to do. And he still has this kind of ongoing um, issue. You know, why does this happen? And I think Paul's response, which might be a very unsatisfactory response for a lot of people today, but Paul's response is, um, you know, we just we just don't know. It's just beyond it. Somehow, the, the the human logic doesn't work. But that's the scandal of the cross. I mean, you're talking about a faith that is paradoxical, um, in its it, to its core, with Jesus dying and but being a liberator. Um, so Paul's appeal to he appeals to mystery in that way. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I find it personally unsatisfactory. I would, I'd have liked, you know, a little bit more of a bow. Um, uh, but it's, yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing. Yeah. I mean, you alluded to it earlier too, the idea that, I mean, one interpretation of what's going on is that Paul's had a, a, a revelatory experience, but we know Paul's had a revelatory experience. Like you look at acts and just how it's recorded. It's either two or three different ways when he tries to express what, when Luke tries to express uh, how Paul seemingly expressed what happened on that road. Like there's just like, I can't, it it was so, and then, and I, I couldn't see it, but they could, and I I couldn't hear it, but they could. And it it was like, it's bizarre. Right. Like, and so like the idea that something that kind of outside of language and experience is able to, to kind of hit him. um, You can understand how that would be something that would be kind of difficult to, to express, I suppose. Uh, And, the, the favorite example that I have heard somebody use and when they opened my eyes to see it, in, uh, I haven't been able to unsee it, is this kind of trajectory of uh, the dif- differentiation between how, um, I, I can't never remember if it's, I think it's either 2 Samuel or 1 Kings when David, I think it's 2 Samuel, when David is enticed by the Lord to do a census of the people. And then, uh, and it turns out in a few, few uh, verses later, it's like, that was super bad. You shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then in Chronicles, it's like an evil spirit enticed David to, to do the census. And it's like, you know, whether this is a few decades or a few centuries later, as they're retelling it, the, the people are like, yeah, I mean, it might, maybe, you know, God's in control, but he's not the one who did it. Right. And this this kind of theological wrestling with the, you know, causality versus kind of like allowance. And uh, we still wrestle with, with those things today, yeah. whether we're Calvinists or Wesleyans. Wesleyan. Yeah, good luck. I mean, it's a it's a tough. I mean, you see, and you see ancient Jewish writers like Philo of Alexandria, who's writing in the first century, thoroughly Jewish writer and thoroughly embedded in the the Greco-Roman philosophical tradition. And he's really he really separates like God is only good and can only do good things. So for him, there's an emphasis on the demonic forces. Mm -hmm. Um, So you know, there are unclean spirits or the evil spirits who you know, they're agents of wickedness, but that's not what God's doing. But it is a little bit of a special pleading there because, you know, he still maintains that God is in control of everything. Sure. Um, so it's a it's a rhetorical device to kind of buff, give a buffer to a good God. Um, but of course, can his conception of goodness might be slightly different than a human conception of goodness. Yeah, that's always a fun one. If God does it, it's good. Therefore, he gets to define goodness. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. all right, and full stop. So, uh, so much for Paul being a demoniac. So that, I mean, there you go. That, you've heard it here first, folks. That's interesting. So he also apparently, he, we know that he was circumcised. Uh, yeah. And so you're saying that this could have been viewed as and experienced as in different camps as a disability. So like to among his family and among his his uh, ethnos and as, as he was growing up and when he was in places where the Jews were a majority was a bonus. But then as he was operating in Greco Roman worlds, this is viewed as a, a disability. I was interesting to remind us how, 
how would people know? So like, do people see each other's stuff semi-regularly? How does that work? Yeah, there's a good, that's a good question. People often quest, ask, you know, did Paul use the bath? Would that have been a situation? I think I don't focus on that because I mean, it's purely speculative. He probably used the bath, but I don't have any evidence that I can point to it. But the problem is that circumcision is such a huge motif in his own ministry. So it appears all over his letters. Mm. Um, and, you know, Galatians is expressly about this congregation in Asia Minor who is wanting or being pressured to or being coerced into cutting off their foreskin. And Paul actually, he might not be experiencing disability himself there, like a, a ridicule towards circumcision, but he actually has to um, amplify or reinforce the stigma towards circumcision in order to influence this these Gentile men not to circumcise. Because for him, it creates a theological problem that if they try and circumcise, thinking that it's a replacement for faith in Christ, then they're actually going to jeopardize the whole faith in total. Um, and so with circumcision, we don't find, I don't argue so much of Paul's experience of, dis, of discrimination or stigma, but his actually use and reinforcement of wider Greco-Roman stigma, even so much so that he, you know, when he refers to Jewish people, he calls them as a stereotypical name, the circumcision, hmm. right? In Galatians or in Romans, he says, you know, I was sent to the circum or Peter was sent to the circumcision, and then I was sent to the foreskin. So it's this very weird, reductive, androcentric like classification of the world based on male genitalia. Some, you know, these are the people defined by circumcised genitals. These are the people circum uh, defined by uncircumcised genitals. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, in doing that, he's actually reinforcing the stereotype of Jews. Jewish people with circumcision and reinforcing that kind of divide between Jews, Jewish people and non, non-Jewish people. Yeah. In the same letter that he says, there's no Jew or Greek. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So no Jew or slave or free, but you should not get circumcised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I kind of got hauled before the Sanhedrin uh, of sorts the other day of somebody was just kind of was uh, started talking about Sabbath, uh, Sabbath observance and and seeing how he noticed that a, a number of modern Western Gentiles um, are kind of leaning hard on the Sabbath uh, as though it's a good idea, but not just that it's a good idea, but that it could be in some respects almost a command. And then, and then he start he used this this Galatians argument to say we shouldn't appropriate or adopt any of these customs. You know, each day is the same, whatever. And so it kind of led me into this Galatians uh, wormhole that I'm kind of trying to understand, like. Is Paul saying that Jews themselves also shouldn't get circumcised? Or like, do you view, is in your understanding, is he saying that this is a disability full stop? Or are you saying, like you kind of intimated earlier, that he would even be aware that there are kind of contextual reasons for this to be not just a bad thing, but a good thing for some people, and not just a neutral thing, but a bad thing for other people? Yeah, I think, I mean, if he's definitely, there's no way he's not aware of the negativity associated with circumcision. Mm -hmm. um, but it, he is holding, he's kind of having his cake and eating it too. It's two positions that uh, Jewish people shouldn't necessarily abandon their circumcision or Jewish practices, so long as they don't think that it is um, is necessarily related to faith in faith in Christ. Because he makes a distinguish, distinguishing this, uh, he distinguishes between um, uh, righteousness through the law, which he thinks is valid, but it's not um, as, uh, I guess, effective as right, God's righteousness, which is given through Christ in faith. Um, but the circumcision of the Gentiles creates a, a serious problem. Uh, you know, as my colleague has argued, Matthew Thiessen, the problem with circumcision is not the act itself, but the fact that if they try to do it in order to obey a command of God, they'll technically be violating, they'll be breaking the law because the part of the law is that the, a child is circumcised on the eighth day um, after they've been born. So for, for um, grown adult men to be circumcising, they, when they, if they do it in order to fulfill the command, they automatically become lawbreakers because they haven't done it on the specific, the specific time. And we do have ancient texts that are concerned about this. For example, um, 
the Septuagint, so the Greek translation of Genesis 17, where the command is, it, it, it emphasizes the eighth day. We have another Jewish text, Jubilees, which condemns people who are not circumcising their children on the eighth day, because if they're not on the eighth day, then they can't be a part of the covenant. Um, so there is this serious concern there. Um, yeah, I, it's interesting. I mean, with the way, especially a lot of Christian interpreters interpret Galatians, they often take circumcision as kind of a metonym for the whole Jewish law, right? Like Paul condemned circumcision, but he must be referring to the whole law. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, one of my colleagues, Mark Nanos, would say, you know, Paul would probably recommend people to, you know, keep the Sabbath. He probably because these are probably you know, imitating this Judean way of life, he doesn't think that's bad because it's commanded by God. Um, I mean, and he does reinforce, you know, of course, not serving other idols. He He's big on, you know, not committing adultery or be, being careful with pornea, sexual irregularity or immorality. Um, and so people kind of generalize, oh, well, Paul must be an advocate against all of the law, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. Circumcision is a is different from other practices because it's something that physically alters your body. And so it's not just a symbolic practice. It's not just, you know, putting your phone away on a Friday. Um, it's fundamentally changing your body. And if you're doing that because you think that it's going to um, make you righteous before God or just justify you, then it's a serious problem. And I mean, in Galatians 5, Paul says, um, you know, if you do this, you're going to get cut off from Christ. Um, so he's not mincing words here. He's actually saying you're actually jeopardizing your whole, your whole salvation. Um, I think he even says that you, I wish that the people who are, you know, encouraging you to do this would just cut off their whole biz, right? Like, yes, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, Pastoral Paul, right? Uh, that, that really encouraging word. He would, he'd have gotten serious? fired for sure. Yeah. He takes it. But yeah. And you say, it's interesting to, to point out that this is a command that has a, a particular price to it, as it were. I mean, it, it, it does physically alter your body in an irrevocable way, at least in the ancient world in particular. Um, and then you use that in your book to tease out the idea that there's a, there's a connectivity here between this, then the resurrection of a Jewish person, the resurrection of a circumcised person, and the resurrection of Christ. And so the idea that when Christ himself is is resurrected, he has both a new body and the same body. So he has both a new spiritual body and a body that seems to have the same kinds of scars that he received while he was being flogged and crucified. And that there may be a connectivity between that and how disability is something that is not necessarily solved by by resurrection do you want to kind of speak into that if i especially correct anything that i'm kind of mislabeling for you but oh yeah um so a, a big question uh in disability theology today is the erasure of disability and resurrection so the uh, people think that um this controversial idea of you know when bodies are resurrected they'll be quote unquote healed right. um Healing, of course, is not a value-neutral thing. It's a transformation of a body into a, a kind of bodily ideal, but not necessarily everyone has that same bodily ideal. Um, so the question of continuity, and it's actually an ancient question. So I'm draw I draw on the on the in the book from my colleague Candida Moss, her book on uh, resurrection, and specifically her explanation of Mark nine, where Jesus talks about you know. You know, if your eye causes you to sin or your hand causes you to sin or your leg causes you to sin, you know, it's better for you to go into life with one eye or one hand and one leg. Right. Uh, and that presumes continuity, hmm. even in a resurrected life, in life to come. And this is a huge question. If you read, there's a great book on resurrection by John Levinson, and he talks about for the rabbis, um, for the later rabbis, they're really wrestling with this idea. At least some of them are wrestling with this idea, you know. For resurrection to happen, um, it has to be the same body as from before. Um, it can't be a different body, otherwise it's not, you're not resurrecting the same person. So there's a deeply, uh, there's a deeply deep embodied connection here between the, the shape and form and function of your body in the present and its continuity in the future. So for Paul, circumcision, of course, um, is a, a irrevocable mark. I mean, there are some operations, but a lot of them in ancient, according to ancient medicine, they don't necessarily solve Jewish 
decision because it's very thorough um, uh, uh, procedure. Uh, so the problem for 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 Gentiles would be to think about um, uh, Jewish followers of Christ who are resurrected in their bodies, but then are would be still be circumcised, and and this is the idea that their disability kind of continues in the life to come, and it raises the question of of that continuity. And I think Paul hints at it that there is continuity between bodies. And I survey a lot of other ancient Second Temple Jewish literature that there is a kind of expectation. There's no hint that bodies are changed or altered. They are altered in substance, but not necessarily in form. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I hadn't encountered that point about the idea that, you know, Christ's own words suggest that there could be some sort of continuity between you know, what you might do to get you into eternal life and then how that eternal life might be lived or experienced for you. Yeah. One of the things, I mean, it's, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I don't spend a lot of time in, in this, um, in this space in terms of disability, but I, the last uh, person that I spoke to on this podcast was about disability studies and about his look into, um, how it gets used in worship music and in hymns and hymn, hymnography and whatnot. Uh, and so I, I've been having to, to dwell here for a lot and, it does pose this a, a real slight conundrum, which, like you already you just said, is what is what is an ideal? And so I usually come at it from the opposite side because I find that in our current day and age, people are fighting pretty hard. At least a good subset of people are fighting pretty hard for there to be no norm in terms of like what a human is. And so we're doing that in a number of different ways, but usually it's from the the top down. So it's the idea that there should be no limit on what a human can be. So a human should be able to be augmented by different kind of gene splicing. Humans should be able to have, you know, integration with AI. Humans should be able to, you know, and I will try to avoid saying things that are a little bit more controversial in terms of maybe gender or sexuality, but like at the end of the day, the, and, and I, a human should be able to, is kind of like full stop should be able to, uh, but there's less conversation about what a human what the floor should look like, like what at the end of the day for thriving and for, for happiness and health, what should a human be able to like, should a human be able to have two, two eyes that, that work, two ears that work, a mouth that's able to communicate in the way that they want to, like, should that be something that, that we strive for to help everybody get towards that? Um, and so the idea that this is in some respects, an, it could be a, an area of consent is one that I'm still trying to wrestle my way through the idea that Jesus himself, you know, at least a number of times, not necessarily every single time, but a number of times in even the gospels, when he's being recorded uh, as approaching somebody, he asks them, what do you want? Right. It's like, I want to be, I want to be healed. So these are, these are, he's not walking over to people and being like, you know, Shabbat and just like hitting them and like knocking them over. Like he he's, he's walking into their space and, and, or they're walking into his and he's asking, so in light of who you are and where you are, what do you want? How, how can I help you? And so rather than me try to put some sort of a norm on you, I tend to usually try to fight and say that I, I think that there are norms, but I do appreciate the idea that we shouldn't use those norms as some kind of a judgmental uh, value statement. And we shouldn't use them as some sort of a weapon either in terms of how, how Christians are supposed to view the world around them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, there are occasions where Jesus does uh, respect, I guess, the consent and agency of the people who's healing, but there are also instances where he does it, right? Like he heals not without permission. They haven't requested or it's been requested by other people. Yes. Uh, so that makes for a complex portrait of Jesus in, in the gospels. Um, as far as norms, I think, I think one of the, one of the big emphases of uh, disability studies and of course the disability rights movement is agency and it's interesting the the question the question of thriving uh, always comes up that word for whatever reason it always permeates every single conversation um but thriving is is can be very very subjective um and what we we live in a world where a lot of language not least in worship music um uh, absolutely but in the whole discourse and discussing about dis disability or people with disabilities, right? It's laden with a kind of pejorative sense of, well, this is not a sense of thriving or this is not the, the best you can be like that kind of top threshold of human life. 
Um, right. So if you describe a wheelchair user as, you know, someone who's wheelchair bound, right. So that there's an, a, a, a connection with kind of enslavement, um, uh, you know, there's a, the, there's a spatial connection of, you know, not being able to move or being limited. Um, and so I think what, what I and other scholars are trying to point out is not that, that there's not necessarily norms. Of course, there are norms, but there can be different, there are different ideals. And um, it can be, it's problematic to say that there's only one kind of human flourishing or kind of, there should only be a singular kind of monolithic consent about human flourishing. That is, you know, if you don't have, if you're not cited, uh, that you are somehow living a subhuman experience. Um, and I think that just kind of collapses human experience. Well, not only does it cause a whole bunch of harm and mental health issues and social stigma, um, but I think it's just, it's reductive because human experience is so diverse and flourishing and joy um, can exist in, in people who are living amidst you know, uh, some of the hardest traumas and pain. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm cautious about, I'm not, I don't think people that I've worked with are trying to abandon any kind of norms, but we're trying to question the use of ideals, like you said, uh, to say, well, you know, that's not, um, you know, that's not really flourishing or that's not ideal, or of course God's will for you is to be X, right? Like there's this kind of uh, prosperity gospel, you know, you're, your bodies to be whole. Well, who gets to define what's whole? Um, a question that I often get asked is, you know, is this question of continuity? You know, will people with disabilities, um, you know, will their disabilities will be erased in the future? Uh, will they be maintained? And my hope is, and I don't have a biblical basis for this, but my hope is that there's um, that there's room for agency. That if there's someone who wants their body to be different. Um, to be differently able to be, you know, maybe they're non-sighted or uh, they have a mobility impairment and in the future they want to be not, uh, they, uh, they want to have different abilities, um, then that could be something for them, that it's, there's a respect and resurrection for that agency. But I think it becomes problematic if, if, and I don't want to be prescriptive, I'm not trying to tell other people how to live here, but I think it becomes problematic if the goal of your whole life is to get that ideal thriving quote-unquote body because then that kind of embodiment becomes an idol and um yeah and it, i think it makes life really right now really really difficult more difficult and, than it and it's temporary too you said it near the very beginning of this conversation when i asked if you had a personal stake in this and you said i'm not disabled yet uh and just the idea that like there listen you're if you're even you're rocking it you got 2020 vision and you can climb a mountain it, that is a temporary condition uh, oh, and, and something happens to all of us at some point in time. And so is that, I mean, is there a takeaway? Like, yes, there is for you. What is like one either academic or pastoral takeaway? Somebody reads through this book, which I'm hoping many people will have the opportunity to do. What are you hoping that they'll be able to use to apply to their kind of worldview today? Yeah. Great question. I, I mean, I think the the thing that I've said to other people is that, you know, that disabled people are speaking and they have been speaking and uh, folks like Paul are influential, have been influential in shaping our scriptures. Uh, if we would just listen to their voices, I think our communities and our living would be made so much more richer. Um, and it's been, it's a sad time, you know, kind of post quote, quote, COVID. Um, you know, we saw during COVID kind of accessibility towards church congregations, for example, just explode, like, um, because everything went online, and suddenly there were a whole group of people who didn't have access to, uh, you know, what happens on a Sunday, now have access to it. And then, and I've really appreciated, especially a lot of churches at Moncton who have maintained, and have, I think, are showing, being a really great witness to have maintained those online options, um, still connecting with people. Um, but I think there's still a lot more to be done. I mean, one area is, is in worship music lyrics. You know, we were in chapel the other day, we were playing an older Hillsong song and uh, use a very ableist term that I did not realize was in there. And just banking on that kind of metaphor, you know, if we listen to people, folks with disability um, and their experiences, then maybe we'll think twice about, you know, using visual impairment or, or mobility impairment or disability as kind of 
this foil for uh, unholiness or, you know, a lack of spirituality or a lack of connection with God. I think I want, if people read through the book and they think, you know, I need to listen to or pay attention to or attune myself to the experiences and the wisdom that's coming out of the disability community, um, then that'll be, that'll have been a big win. That's huge. Well, unsurprisingly, we've used almost a whole hour and and barely scratching the surface of your book. Um, I'm incredibly grateful for it. I did want to just like take a couple minutes because you provided just a, a masterful segue towards it. Uh, music, like I said, you, your music was a huge part of your story at the beginning. And then I'm guessing, you know, as you're going through doctoral studies and as you're, you know, researching for a book, probably not doing a whole ton ton of things other than writing and sleeping during this time. But then in the last year or so online, we're starting to see some uh, pitter patter uh, coming from now. How do you, how are you pronouncing the Y E U N G? What is that? I pronounce it young. It's part of my middle name. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Excellent. So, uh, so that's young Y E U N G. This kind of the, the stage name that you're using for this content that's coming out. And we've seen three singles so far. So my question to you, is this worship music? Uh, oh, great question. <laughs> it is worship music for me. So all of the songs that I've written for this have really come from me worshiping in my basement. And okay. they're, they're the articulations of me trying to incorporate some of the latest and best like New Testament thought and research into things that connect with other people. Hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't, I don't think, and it hasn't been characterized by the algorithm or other playlists. It hasn't been picked up in kind of contemporary worship, but there have been, you know, some radio stations who have actually started to play it here in uh, in in Fredericton, like Joy FM, um, and then, yeah, <laughs> and also uh, Faith FM in um, in uh, Ontario, mm -hmm. but then also UCB in um, in England. But yeah, we live in a mark in a market where a lot of worship music is. I think, and I don't want to sound negative here, but it's, it is very, it, it has a worship sound, right? It's created its own niche. You know, when I was uh, with Hillsong, you know, it's Hillsong, you know, there's Bethel, Elevation's just kind of coming around. But now, you know, fast forward a decade and a half, you know, every single church is kind of putting on their own kind of worship music. Um, and I was getting very frustrated listening. So I listening over the last couple of years to these songs and a lot of the songs I think are very well-meaning, but the lyrics are just very either theologically shallow um, or actually just wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I kind of felt called to pick up music again and try to create music that could be used in churches or at least could minister to Christians um, in, in a different way. So I, I hope it is a, is a little bit more worshipful for listeners. I think my next album will be more geared towards congregational singing, but I think for this, I'm interested in just kind of uh, exploring some of these theological themes in the CCM market. Yeah, of course, that was the that was the joke when I asked if it was worship music, because what I what I what that means is is it or what it could mean is can anybody sing along to this at church? And so I'll tell you, I have enjoyed them. I think they're, they're really, really well produced. They sound great. I do. I don't know if people will easily be able to sing along with them, but like, so the first one that you released, which was this kind of like deep theological dive into the significance of baptism and stuff. I was like, Ooh, I mean, like you say, uh, there's a lot of great songwriters out there. Most of them don't have PhDs in new Testament studies. And so that is a pretty interesting crossover of uh, skill sets and so yeah the lyrics are very robust and if you uh but they're surface level accessible like it's not as though you're using the word transubstantiation <laughs> in in uh in the lyrics but but so they're 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 singable and understandable but then you can kind of go oh i can see the layers of meaning that are kind of underneath there uh oh. and you know you mentioned prosperity gospel just a few minutes ago your your latest one that came out here with genie um you know obviously it's got this it, it's it's nice it's, it's it has a great message but it also sounds good you're releasing these intentionally as singles i've noticed so are is this compiled in any respects as a, as an album online or are they kind of each individual releases yeah well i mean we live in an age where i mean i don't have much i only have a growing audience so um if i release an album there might be, you know, my mom will listen to it and uh, some of my family. So it's kind of one of the strategies that uh, the streaming age has made is just kind of dripping 
singles every now and then hopefully towards an album next year i mean i have all nine songs recorded that this album just need to be mixed and and some final production stuff uh so hopefully next year but i think it's um because of you know a decade and a half ago releasing your own music was really difficult you're still doing physical things you had to go through you know a distributor or an aggregator and you had to pay a lot um, but now with online aggregators you pay like a flat fee per year and you can just release as many things as you want and um yeah so i think i'm just releasing bit by bit where i get the time in between my my teaching and um yeah see if people see people people like it or not yeah, I mean, music, uh, biblical studies, uh, book writing, teaching, apple picking. I mean, you've got you've got a full plate, Isaac. You can't do it all. Um, uh, what's the w- w- just really quickly before we go? What's the next thing that you're working on? You mentioned that you're, you're filling out filling out paperwork this morning, but what to what end? Do you have another book proposal on the go? Yeah, I've got two. Uh, um, so one book is uh, continuing Paul, my work on Paul, but thinking about Paul from um his own experiences of death and how that has affected and maybe traumatized him and how it affects his his writing and our understanding of it um a lot of times when people focus on paul and death they focus on either the how does death like relate to believers right after they've been saved and why do they still experience death and what's its purpose or the significance of Jesus's death. Why does Jesus die? But we rarely think and really spend a lot of time thinking about um, death with Paul and you know, perhaps some of the mental health crises that he had himself. Um, and that's kind of stimulated by you know, the ongoing questions and in Canadian culture about the use of um, medically assisted dying, so MAID, and just this question of self-killing and how in the ancient world, you know, there's there's a very you know, in the modern conversations, it's always talked about you know the sacredness of life, and Christians advocate against this. Against this, um, but it's, it's a little bit more. Uh, ancient authors might be a little bit more ambivalent about um, kind of honorary deaths, uh, and so looking at that, that's kind of uh, one of the the next major projects that I'm working on. Whoa. All right. So we're going from disability to medical assistance and dying. My gosh, you just don't mind emails. eh? You don't mind them at all. <laughs> I, I rarely get them. Mostly people just saying, thanks for your work. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, listen, uh, yeah, truly, I truly appreciate you uh, making the time to, uh, amidst all of your things, to have a conversation today. So Paul, a disabled apostle, you can check that out uh, everywhere where you happen to buy books. Uh, and then uh, Young, Y-E-U-N-G, is music. And those things will be in the show notes as well if people want to follow up. Isaac, I hope the rest of your day is absolutely splendid. I think so. Thanks for having me on, Mark. his confidence and wondering why the world is past him.